0: Good afternoon again and welcome to Table Talk, a conversation on race. And it's great to be with everyone on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon and on the first day of June. Can you believe that we're about halfway through the year? I don't know if it's gone by fast or slow for you, but we're halfway through the year. We're excited to begin our fourth Table Talk and it's hosted by the Beloved Community. My name is Erwin Lopez and I'm a member of the Beloved Community leadership team which works as part of the Bishop's Anti-Racism Task Force. The goal of our webinar is to bring awareness to the anti-racism work in the Florida Conference, to equip and support those who are integrating anti-racism into their ministry and their lives. And because we believe anti-racism to be a part of discipleship, we believe that this is how we love God and love neighbor. So today's webinar series is the first part of a two-part series titled how to talk to people about race. And we have two very special guests Dr. Amy Victoria Adkins Jones and Dr. Gerald Liu. They will be leading us in a short presentation that will culminate in a time of question and answer. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Amy Victoria Adkins Jones. She's an assistant professor of theology and African diaspora studies at Boston College. She's a theologian. Black Studies scholar with an expertise in Mariology, theological anthropology, and womenist and Black feminist thoughts. She was also one of my preceptors, one of our teaching assistants while I was at Duke Divinity School. And I learned so much from her in my theology of race class. And I'm very excited that you'll get the opportunity to hear from her. So without further ado, Dr. Amy Victoria Adkins-Jones, the floor is yours.
1: Hello, I said good morning in the chat, but it is afternoon. Which speaks to the time warp I have been in for the last two plus years. It is a joy to be here, and I originally thought I might be the only speaker, so my slides are overdone in terms of time. So I'm going to speak a little bit, and then I'm just going to speak from the heart. I am a Black. Um, queer identified woman from the South. I call myself a displaced Southerner. I live in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, I am married. My spouse is a pastor. um, And we have four children. I have three bonus babies. I gave birth to our daughter, Judah, uh, January 20th, 2020. Uh, it was MLK Day. I remember that Trump, Donald Trump had said something about race and Martin Luther King. And my spouse asked me if he could answer the phone. He was getting press phone calls on a theological response <laughs> to something that had been said. And um, when she was about five or six weeks old, we went into quarantine. And so... I think uh, I've been thinking a lot about race my entire life, but certainly thinking a lot about race through the eyes of raising children in the world that we live in. I work in Boston. My spouse is also a professor and so teaches at Union in New York City. And so we are on the go a lot. Our children, when they are our older children, when they're not with us, they live in Massachusetts. And so we've done it all. I've been working full time and also staying at home. And I've also been a virtual teacher. We opened up Atkins Jones Academy as the world continued to unfold in so many different kinds of ways. And as I continue to try to help um, undergraduate and doctoral college students, doctoral students in theology make sense of the last few years in light of the history of the church in light of our vocations, in light of service. And this has been no task uh, I've been able to do without the grace of God. And honestly, most days have felt more like a hot mess than like the heavenly kingdom. So how to talk about race. Um, I think that there's a couple of things, well, there's so many things that I could say here, but how to talk about race. this is complicated. And I think that the first thing I wanna say is that we're always talking about race, uh, even, when we, uh, even when we don't think about it. So many times uh, we reduce the conversation to race to being a conversation about what's happening with black folks or what's happening in our Latinx communities or what is happening in our AAPI communities, right? Race becomes this diminutive thing And the way that whiteness functions in our world means that we're always talking about race, even if it's made invisible, even if it is not something that we um, see as against the norm, right? Like that this isn't actually just some sort of side conversation or conversation about, you know, a disgruntled, like the latest happenings, right? Race isn't just a conversation around, police shootings or around racism, but race is really so deeply a part of the world that we all have been birthed into. And I think that looking back at some of the discussions you've had, you've already had some discussions of this. If you're showing up to this conversation, you're probably a little bit aware of this and some of the resources around this. But the first thing I wanna say is that we're always talking about race, that it's not a side discussion. And that's simply because the The history of the world and also the history of our church, the world that we live in, is so deeply informed by racial identity and racial ideas. And I thought that I would be coming to you originally um, at at a painful time, but at a less painful time than where we are now. I thought that this would be on the heels of Memorial Day and of the anniversary of George Floyd's death. And I didn't know that we would still be grieving um, the horrific massacre in Buffalo, New York. I didn't know that we would still be grieving such a senseless and horrific massacre in Uvalde, Texas. And um, the dozens of mass shootings that had even happened since then. And so I just wanna name that place and that space. And so one of the ways that I, I start talking about race. One uh, is, to, is to begin with truth telling and telling stories. And one of the stories that I think may be appropriate for our timeline, I come from a military family. I come from actually a really small place in Southwestern Virginia, a very small town, plenty of KKK, um, <laughs> mountain, like right in the, in the middle of the Blue Ridge, lots of red clay. And places where I grew up where we don't eat and gas stations you didn't stop at. And honestly, it wasn't a big deal. It was so much a part of the ethos of my life. And it was so deeply a part of the ethos of so many of our churches. And um, growing, growing up there and growing up with a military family, that was the way everyone where I was from got to college, ROTC. It's not, um, I come from a place that's um, a farm town and, and really factory based. And so one of the stories that doesn't always get told about Memorial Day is that really the first instance in history of, of Memorial Day, um, what, and, and back then it was called Decoration Day, but really is a story from Charleston, South Carolina. So not too, too far from some of where some of y'all are in Florida per se, maybe. Um, And um, really the story that uh, newly freed African-Americans who had fought in the civil war um, had this ceremony where they decorated soldiers' graves. And this was in 1865, uh, before Memorial Day was a national holiday in 1889. And really, this story um, is is deeply, beautifully important because uh, the New York Tribune at the time described it as a procession of friends, uh, African over 10,000 formerly enslaved people, as well as white missionaries um, who held a parade around a racetrack and decorated graves in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, The New York Tribune described it as a procession of friends and mourners as South Carolina and the United States never saw before. And I share this story, not only for the timeliness of it, but because we are in such a strange moment historically, such a strange moment where information gets passed or distorted or not, where our histories are experiencing erasure, where silences and gaps are occurring, where people are fearful of knowledge and these ideas and scary thoughts that are creating moral panics and wanna ban books and don't want people to tell certain kinds of stories. But our stories are so important to who we are and who we are as a people. And our stories are what ground us in hope. Our conversations about race right now in this country require a lot of difficult spaces And there's a lot of grief and mourning, but also being racially identified is not a story of pathology. It's not just a story of terrible things happening uh, or egregious arguments or only division. Uh, That our stories also are ones that can speak to joy and to hope and to possibility even when we are grieving and even when we are mourning and even when we continue to see and experience so much death in the world, even when our hearts are broken and our world is broken too. And so there was a lot that I had planned to say um, about speaking about race, but I'll, I'll try and keep it to this when I'm teaching theology, one of the songs that I like to play is this song. And I love the Yolanda Adams version. Uh, and it's Lord, I want to be a Christian. And uh, I would play it, but I'm trying to move a little bit quickly because of time. But the song says, Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart. Lord, I want to be a Christian in my heart. Um, I want, And the lyrics continue, I want to be more loving in my heart. I want to be more holy in my heart, in my heart, in my heart. Lord, I want to be like Jesus in my heart. And I find that it's such a beautiful song. And one of the things that I emphasize is that this isn't just an American spiritual, uh, but a specifically African-American spiritual. And what makes that important is not a sort of separation of uh, exclusion, um, but what makes that important is that This song was likely composed by enslaved uh, Africans in Virginia, my home state, in the 1750s who had likely been evangelized um, by a Presbyterian minister, um, Samuel Davies. And it was printed in 1907 as part of the Folk Songs of the American Negro Book. And it is important because we have to recall that in our own church histories, Right, Our stories of Jesus's witness and life and resurrection and hope have not always been told uh, in an equal or equitable measure to everyone. And I think frequently of um, a minister, Francis LeJaw's baptism. And in that baptism, he was a South Carolina minister. Again, we started in South Carolina, we're in Virginia, we're in the low country y'all. And he was a South Carolina minister who made Uh, those who were enslaved take an oath before and with their baptism, promising that their desire to convert to Christianity was not, quote, not out of any design to free yourself from the duty and obedience you owe to your master while you live. That was part of the baptismal formulation. And if we're on this call today, then our baptisms and the way that we baptize means something to us. This was part of the formulation. And so what continues to strike me is that somewhere between these baptismal rites that were so deeply perverted, that there continued to be this yearning and this calling out of wanting to be a Christian, of seeing someone in the person of Jesus Christ, of seeing some sort of witness that continued to draw and say, this is how I want the shape of my life to be, even when the circumstances are, are impossibly inhuman. And I ask that question because this is something that doesn't make sense to me. Why would anyone enslaved in this country ever want to be a Christian? Why would anybody who was considered not fully human want to aspire or worship the same God as the, as the God of, of folks who? who said that this is what what God designed for your life, enslavement. And there's lots of ways that this gets attributed, right? Like psychology and coping mechanisms and opiates of the masses. And, you know, our churches are shrinking and declining and our churches are separating and are breaking and, you know, generation X, Y, Z, double Z, A, B, C doesn't care about God anymore. All of these kinds of things that we're constantly being told Um, and yet, I think that it's important to believe the witness of what people say about themselves. And this idea that I wanna be a Christian, I wanna be more loving, I want to be more holy, I want to be like Jesus, um, for me speaks to what it means for us to continue striving together in the Christian faith. And speaks to me uh, to what it means for us to think about God and the things that God loves and the people that God loves. And for us to continue to think about the ways that God and Jesus are are witnessed as being with those in in vulnerable situations, of being with those who mourn, of being on the side of justice and desire, Um, and, and something that comes through breath and through song, sometimes in ways that are more powerful than just words. Uh, something that comes through art and through music and the holy that inspires us to act, inspires us to live fiercely and to live boldly. And as Daniel Migliori, a uh, theologian puts it, to think that faith in God revealed in Jesus Christ should set an inquiry in motion, should fight the inclination to accept things as they are and continually call us to question unexamined assumptions about God, our world and ourselves. And what that means uh, as, as one writer who isn't Christian puts it but who has learned and speaks Tara Burton, speaks about why studying Christian thought and Christian theology was important for her. That the idea that studying theology well requires not just faith, but empathy. So, Talking about race, I have no idea where we are with time. Valerie Castile, Orlando Castile's mother, says for years I've cried for other women's children. And I've been thinking a lot about how difficult it is to parent children in the world that we live in. And the fears and the context that we think about. And even the ways that I've never had the Privilege, and I know people are allergic to that word, but I've never had the privilege to not speak to my children about race Uh, because we live in a world that makes sense of them before even knowing them because of what they look like and because of who their parents are, because of our genealogy, and really doesn't care about faith or class or gender uh, either, actually, I should say, in this sort of intersectional realm. And so, one of the ways that I think and talk about race and church settings is when we think about what it means for Mary to cry and mourn the senseless death of her child what does it mean for us to think about a mater dolorosa what does it mean for us to perhaps think about a black madonna what does it mean for us to think about needless suffering in the world and the ways that our hearts are pierced by violence, by unforgiveness, by pride in ways that continue to tear us and tear at us as opposed to bringing us together. And this is an image, and I'm just gonna move my screen just to make sure Um, sometimes I know it blocks it out on Zoom. This is an image of Mamie Till crying um, over the open casket of her son, Emmett Till, who was horribly uh, murdered in Mississippi, and a story that many of us know very well. What does it mean for us to come to the places of the cross in the world today? What does it mean for us to cry tears? What does it mean for us to resist and to act? What does it mean for us to see others suffering and to say something? What does it mean for us to speak to resurrection in the midst of Good Friday? What does it mean for us to be Easter people in a Lenten world? And what does it mean for us to be called to do that together? As Christians, that's that's for me a place that I start and often to think about the least of these as the littlest of those among us. And to understand that every parent, for the most part, obviously, there are always, I never use those sort of big every all sorts of words, right? We know that, our, our parenting is often broken too, but what does it mean that we care about our children and the world that we want to live in? And is that a place where we can listen attentively to one another? Is that a place where we can hear the concerns and the cries for one another differently? I think about that not only um, in terms of one. Um, that's not, that's not just a question about um, one particular kind of violence, but it is a question of what does it mean for everyone to live in a world and have opportunities to flourish, And what does it mean for all of the ways that the questions of being woke or CRT, which are Moral, like created moral panics. There are histories around these. That's not what any of these things actually mean, but they've become these buzzwords that are uh, part of our news cycles in our world today. What does it mean for us to step back from all of these things that we're being told and just think about what it means for people to thrive, people to flourish, people to have space to dream and to live freely? And if And if possible, can we think about race as a means of not only talking about the histories that make a lot of people uncomfortable, but can we begin to tell the truth about how none of us would be here without the multiplicity of stories that we all share in this country. And that navigating the difficulties of race And even the difficulties of racism, that's a part of the work that we must do, but that's not the only question of race. That's not the only question more broadly of what it means to be able to thrive and to live together. And the ways that we continue to together become more loving and more holy and more like Christ when we're in community together than when we are not. And so I know that there's a lot going on in the conference. And again, I'm trying to sort of truncate and move a couple of pieces around uh, to respect our time. But I've seen these kinds of articles and articles also written by folks who identify as black women, uh, if, is your church going woke or you know, all of these sorts of things. And I'm trying even myself Um, to listen, it's not everybody's job to tell their story or to necessarily share. But for me, for us who are pastors, for us who are theologians, for us who are teachers, this is part of like what we step up to do, not without boundaries, but this is part of what the work that we're willing to get into, the mess that we're willing to, to, uh, to navigate together, led by the spirit of God. And what I hear in the heart of so many of these sorts of articles and narrations is a fear of loss. And so I wanna know, what is it that people think we're going to lose? And that's a question that I begin with. What, what are we scared of? Why do we think we're under attack? Where, where do these ideas come from? And then, is there a way for us to actually have deeper conversations about the fears and the way that we've been fear-mongered into separation from one another? I say this because we're also in the season of Pentecost. And I say this because fire uh, burns. (laughs) Fire uh, being refined never sounds like a beautiful, thoughtful process. It's hot and it's hard and it's difficult. But I think that we're called to this kind of work not only because we come out more beautiful and more whole, and um, I, I have questions about the language of purity, right? But like in in a in a in a sort of rarefied state on the other side. But because our children keep dying, <laughs> and all of these conversations are embedded in what it. We're never just talking about gender or class. And so sometimes people say, well, can't we just talk about this other thing? Or can't we just talk about you know, gun violence? Or can't we just talk about, all of these things are actually deeply embedded and deeply embedded inside of the racial history of this country. And as Christians, I think that we imagine a world where Christ calls <laughs> uh, the children among us and where Christ calls all of us as children of God, um, to, to a life and a testimony and witness of abundance and possibility. And so I try to talk about race one, uh, with children and, uh, obviously with appropriate nuances, but because the truth of the matter is, is that our children are talking about race all of the time already. And it's not about shaming one another, but it's about thinking about how we can be better Christians, thinking about how we can be better accountable to the places that aren't fair in the world and how we don't wanna participate in systems that are anti-Christ in terms of their commitments to unity and commitment to human flourishing. But also I talk about race and I encourage us to talk about race to talk about the beauties and the gift of being drawn into community, being drawn together with those who are not like us, with those who also have experienced terrible tragedy and mourning, but those who have also believed and continued to press and plant toward the beauty of something greater. Those who also have something to teach us, to teach one another about how Christ has witnessed in their lives and the ways we can continue growing and reflecting that. And to continue to see and press that the body of Christ doesn't work if we don't have all of its parts. And when I'm speaking to Christians, I try to start there. That the ear needs the foot. Even if the foot you think needs a pedicure. (laughs) We need everyone. And that our world is suffering and that the longer that we are siloed, the longer that that suffering is going to continue. And that our wounds will not heal themselves without being addressed, without be attendant to, without sometimes the sting and the burn of alcohol and peroxide and whatever else it takes to get those things that have infected our hearts out. And so I know that some of that is a little bit uh, more broad uh, the last thing I'll say is one of, the, one of the tools I found helpful, I know it's hard to recommend books these days, but one of the tools I've actually found helpful if you are experienced in sort of these conversations, it's a very introductory uh, space, but it's, I love this book. One, because it's written by a black woman. She's actually um, has a white mother, Ijioma Alua. So you want to talk about race. I found it to be an incredibly helpful starting point in part because it's shaped by questions and the hard questions that aren't fair to bear necessarily on -on one-on-one conversations all of the time, but a wonderful place for the church to start asking questions, not only about who we are, but also asking the questions of our community. What's keeping us from one another, and also the things that we may not have been taught or understood about our history, about what's possible, about the forms of resistance that have continued to manifest. So in there, I don't want to take too much time from Dr. Gerald as well, but I thank you so much for showing up for these conversations. I thank you so much for inviting me just to share a little bit of my heart too, and I'm looking forward to continue to uh, unfold and do this work together.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Atkins Jones, and thank you for your time and thank you for everything you shared, including the fact that we're always talking about race, this idea of truth telling, but also telling the good news as well, and not just stories of grief. And I'm just so thankful for your time and for everything that you share with us today. We're gonna go ahead and move on with Dr. Gerald Liu. Dr. Gerald Liu is the Director of Collegiate Ministries, Initiatives and Belonging for the United Methodist Church Global Board of Higher Education and Ministry. He's ordained in the United Methodist Church and holds a PhD in homiletics and liturgics, which is preaching and worship from Vanderbilt University. And he's previously served in churches full time in the greater Atlanta area in Nottingham, England, as a youth pastor, associate pastor, and lead minister. So without further ado, Dr. Lu, the floor is yours.
2: Thank you, everyone. And uh, specific thanks to you, Erwin, and the Florida Annual Conference, and to Dr. Atkins-Jones, I was putting it together um, in my head that I I know Tim from my days when I used to teach worship and preaching, so please give him my best. And we also share another touch point. I'm originally from the South, uh, born in Jackson, Mississippi, and grew up there where Asians were less than 1% of the population at the time. Where I want to begin is uh, to kind of dovetail with some of the remarks that we just heard and think about three aspects of speaking about race. One is that I wanna give a kind of historical rationale, uh, not a comprehensive one, but just an impression really. Uh, Secondly, I want to talk about a biblical warrant for speaking about race. And then thirdly, I'll come specifically to questions related to Asian American identity. So let, let me begin uh, w- with a little bit of history. So I think a very helpful starting point in terms of gaining a historical anchor for why it's important to address the transgression of racism and not see it as a current trend that's, that's bubbling up or, or even something that we inherited from the legacy of civil rights. It goes all the way back to the formation uh, of who we are um, in, in the United States. And, and here on this slide, I just wanted to point out the fact that we've basically been at war constantly from the 20th to the 21st century, okay? World War I, 1914 to 1918, a generation later, World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam, the Persian Gulf, the war in Afghanistan, Iraq war and the war on terror, although we withdrew from Afghanistan, this kind of war on terror goes on and we can problematize the ways in which the language of conflict is used culturally related to forms of bias, unconscious and explicit and racism and prejudice, for example, the war on drugs. Uh, I I live in New York and also used to work in in New Jersey, and I know that uh, Dr. Atkins Jones said she was based in New Jersey, the legalization of cannabis recently in New York, and uh, especially in New Jersey ha- has been led with a narrative of social equity, right? Because the war on drugs has uh, incarcerated and ruined lives of people of color. So we can see how this love affair with warfare has become extremely problematic in terms of the American consciousness with regard to race. And let me move to another slide. Uh, You may not be able to see this very clearly on your screen, and it's not so important to get the details. Again, I'm just drawing an impression here. I began with the 20th and 21st centuries. And as I said in my initial remarks, this goes all the way back to the formation of the country. So there are wars uh, in addition to the Revolutionary War, wars against the Native Americans, wars depopulating indigenous people all throughout the 18th and 19th centuries leading up to the 20th and 21st centuries. In other words, America as we know it was formed through slaughter and armed conflict. And what this has to do with us who are pastors or involved in the church is that history is very much a part of church history. So we should not be mistaken that Christianity is moving in tandem with the evolution of warfare in the United States and how vital it is to the inception of American Christianity. So I just want to give a couple of examples. Uh, The very founding of the New World, Christopher Columbus, I don't know if you, you may remember, he was sponsored by a Roman Catholic Spanish crown, although he himself a Portuguese, and his ship was called the Santa Maria de la Immaculada Concepcion. Uh, I'm sorry if my Spanish isn't very good, but essentially the Holy Mary of the Immaculate Conception. That was the name of his boat. And uh, he was not looking principally for new land. He was looking for human labor. Columbus also wore a habit, uh, like a Franciscan. When he was off the boat, he read the daily office. He recited prayers. He basically lived a kind of monastic or styled his own lifestyle uh, after monastic disciplines and so you see a kind of symbiosis with christian imperialism and christian culture and the exploitation of human people especially as it pertains to the united states in a book called racism by francisco uh, bethancourt he's also portuguese a historian i believe he's based in london now He actually tries to track uh, how racism came to be. And one of his theories is that it has everything to do with the voyages of Columbus. So when Columbus, for example, found the West Indies, he noticed these people uh, purported to eat flesh, cannibals. That word cannibal comes from the word canibes. It's uh, where we also get words like caribes or Caribbean. Columbus coined that word. So you can imagine uh, sort of rumors about rituals involving the eating of human flesh, whether or not they're true, and there probably was something of this going on that, that he observed, but the prevalence and the sensationalization of it comes out of him coining that term and basically creating a trail of letters that go from the New World back to continental Europe and. and kind of spread through the literature to eventually create tracks, articles, and books. And so folks across the Atlantic are hearing of these human flesh eaters in the new world. Why is that critical to racism? Because what it does is it dehumanizes all of these indigenous people. Well, of course they deserve to be enslaved or of course they deserve to be uh, killed off because they're eating human flesh. Who does that? These people don't deserve to live an early root of racism. Fast forwarding a little bit, uh, this kind of marching in step with Christianity is of course not exclusive to the American context. I'm uh, Cecilia Kapashkin, she's a church historian um, based at Dartmouth, recently released a title called Invisible Weapons. And essentially what she does is she talks about how liturgy itself served as a kind of secret weapon during the Crusades. This is a 500 year war in relation to Christian history from uh, the 1100 or basically 11th century to the 16th century. And what she means by it being a secret weapon is that uh, crusaders, before they would go and slaughter Muslims, they would pray prayers. They would receive mass, the Eucharist. They would seek to be absolved from God so that they could be successful in battle. And what ends up happening is because this uh, kind of liturgical practice occurs for literally hundreds of years, you can imagine how it also is transmitted back to Rome and then across uh, the Roman Catholic Church so that that violence practiced in the name of God begins to influence ecclesial practice. And just to show you a map of kind of the scope of where the Crusades took place, I mean, this is the Levant, you know, this entire region right? This is where people, uh, again, are, are, are being killed uh, in the name of a holy war. So when we think about how to talk about racism, what I'm trying to say is that one of the key touch points, I think, is not just what we're going to say, but having an idea of where we come from. Uh, and, and Dr. Atkins Jones already touched upon this, but, but how tumultuous and, and really bloody that history is. I, I, I'll just uh, kind of swiftly go through a few more slides, uh, not in detail, but to show you how this appears in Christian preaching. You know, This is from a Puritan preacher. He is with you in the field, meaning God, to teach your hands to war, to cover your head in the day of battle, and he hath promised you victory. Uh, Here again, win over the Native Americans with knowledge and obedience of the one God and Savior of mankind. Uh, Fast forwarding, Henry Ward Beecher, considered one of the greatest preachers, the Beecher, I'm here at Yale right now for a conference. Uh, there's a distinguished set of lectures and homiletics called the Beecher Lectures. When he speaks about uh, the Chinese Americans and the difficulty in converting them, he says, we've clubbed them, stoned them, burned them, uh, burned their houses, murdered some of them, and yet they refuse to be converted. I don't know any way except to blow them up with nitroglycerin if we are to ever get them with heaven. You know, these are Christian preachers. Uh, it, it's unbelievable. I'm going to stop sharing here and just say the biblical warrant that I want to provide. um, If I can get it on the screen very quickly,
0: just a sec. Let's see. Okay, I'll share again. Excuse my shuffling back and forth.
2: Thank you for your patience is when we think about why it's so critical to speak about racism, uh, in in addition to um, being woke and the kind of social upheaval that we've experienced recently, this really goes back to our calling as Christians, and not only because certain societal trends are happening. And I like to point to this uh, because of my own training in worship and preaching, and I, I teach with an eye toward this passage in the apocalyptic literature, it's hard to tell what Revelation is saying, but we have a sense of what God desires for the future. After this, I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Note that even Christ is not a person here, uh, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. This incredibly exponentially diverse uh, vision of everyone worshiping the Lamb of God should be a telos that guides our speech when we speak about race, whether it's in professional ministry from the pulpit or an acts of worship, or just casually uh, with friends, neighbors, and and strangers. Let me come to one more timeline. Sorry, that's a real estate site. Um, And I'll try to actually put this in the chat bar to everyone. hopefully it'll come through. This is a timeline of uh, Asian American history. Uh, my parents are immigrants from Taiwan. My mother was born in China, I grew up in Taiwan. My father was raised, uh, born and raised in Taiwan, but they met in Ames, Iowa. But what I wanna show here is that, um, you, you know, racism specific to particular cultures, Uh, takes on many, many different forms in the US. So when we think about the Chinese, although there was an exclusion act in 1882, which was the first uh, congressional act to exclude a particular people, we see Chinese being denied testimony in court as early as 1854. Uh, We see Mongolian immigration being prohibited in 1858. You know, and that Immigration Act of 1882 isn't fully repealed until 1965, when the uh, sort of Immigration and Nationality Act passes in. That's why many East Asian immigrants of the second generation are coming, uh, their parents or those people are coming in the late 60s. And part of that interest is economic. Right, so it's not until money is involved, and in fact, a lot of the push for bringing East Asians over was to find engineers for the Department of Defense. It's again uh, motivated by warfare. And and just a couple, one more um, note here: that sort of Asian American identity actually is entirely inaccurate because Taiwanese people may not identify as Chinese, even though they're ethnically Chinese. Obviously, uh, Southeast Asians such as Filipinos or Vietnamese speak different languages, but there's been a kind of strategic alliance between all these different Asian identities because of historical instances like this one in 1982, where uh, Vincent Chin was killed uh, by two white Americans because there was a kind of replacement theory where they thought he was stealing automotive jobs, even though I'm not even sure that he worked in the automotive industry at all. And all these killers got was uh, a probation and a fine of $3,000 for murder. Uh, So, one, the historical rationale is we just have this deep, problematic history where Christianity is moving in step uh, of genocide, slavery, and all kinds of prejudice and bias in the United States. I think it's important to be aware of that and to inform ourselves of that as we think about how we want to speak about race in the contemporary era. Two, uh, the biblical warrant being Revelation 7-9. You know, we have this telos. We may not know exactly what the author of Revelation means, but we know that God wants everyone together. Uh, all these different people. So, how do we give a glimpse of that not only in church, but but in our lives, right? How can we pastor or preach or lead worship in an anti-racist way if we don't have that kind of personal piety going on in our lives? And what does that mean uh, practically? You know, I'm I'm at a Chinese theology conference here in Yale, and we're even thinking about the difference of people from the mainland who were born in the U.S. or people who speak Cantonese or. Or Mandarin. so once we really really dig into it and find out about people, the people right around us, in my case, uh, it's a lot of Chinese folks uh, w- where I am, we begin to discover all the nuances uh, and the gifts and the graces that, that go along with human diversity and also the challenges that, that come with trying to um, host common conversation and and think together. And so I just want to conclude by saying you know, we're called to this, and as we seek to figure out ways to do it, one way that I think is underexamined is, what are ways in which we can have, we can enjoy one another's company? You know, uh, we don't always have to have an agenda or think, okay, you're different from me. Uh, will you be my friend or something like this? Of, of course, that kind of intention can, can lead to beautiful things, but, but sometimes, uh, you know, just in the ways that we love those who are most endeared to us, it kind of happens organically, if we make the time and space, and just try to figure out ways that we can uh, enjoy being in one another's presence and learning about one another and God. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Lou, And thank you so much, Dr. Atkins Jones. And I love everything that you all shared. And I just have one question to see if you can both address it. And that is, what do we say to folks who would reply to a conversation about race with something like, that was the past. That is not happening anymore. That was, slavery was a long time ago. These wars were a long time ago. Racism is a thing in the past and we don't need to talk about it anymore. How would you respond to something like that? Because I feel like we have a lot of people in the church like that.
1: Well, my first thought, and maybe this is my personality. It was like, well, I don't know. We're Christians. It seems like we talk a lot about things in the past that matter for us now. And (laughs) arguably it's not anything of the past. I mean, I think that that's just categorically untrue. You can't look at anything in the news cycle, but what is the, what's the problem with looking and better understanding things in the past in terms of how they carry, carry us in the future? You know, what's the problem with us acknowledging that one of the most repeated commands in our scriptures is to remember and to remember well and to remember rightly. And so what what are what are we scared of in terms of thinking about the stories we tell and how they tell them, and being willing and open to learning from them? And usually uh, that can unfold something more specific that's behind that. but our entire our entire faith premise is actually, about not only looking to the past, but rehearsing that past liturgically, day in and day out, Sunday in, Sunday out, uh, Christmas in, Christmas out, Easter in, Easter out, and also using that past as a basis for how we live and how we continue to create and mold the world we want for our future. I I completely agree, and and again, you
0: know,
2: I pointed to that biblical warrant as a kind of tell us into the future but I would say look where I live in New York um Asian Americans are getting pushed in front of subway trains to their death they're getting stabbed to death in their apartments they're getting literally beat up uh to death randomly it, it, this is happening you know what a month ago or something like this uh and these are the just the stories that happen in the headlines we we also see um, the kind of police brutality ag- against people of color, uh, brown and black bodies, it, it's not going away. The kind of anti-Semitism that we thought we took care of in World War II, I, I mean, shootings are happening in synagogues. In, in the state of Florida, you know, we, we, we see deadly violence, uh, Dr. Atkins-Jones opened by identifying as queer. We, we see direct violence against queer people and queer people of color uh, in the annual conference that's hosting this particular conversation. So to me, it's pretty obvious that uh, we're, we're nowhere near out of the woods uh, w- with respect to being anti-racist. Uh, although, you know, we don't live in the 19th century anymore. We're not in the early 20th century, but there's still more work to do. And I just want to stress, we should see this work as part of what God is calling, I mean, as what God is calling us to do, right? This is not some sort of eth- ethical mandate because it's hit. Uh, th-
0: this is what it means to be faithful. Thank you, thank you both for answering those questions, and and thank you to everybody who logged in today and took time out of their busy schedule to continue the conversation on anti-racism. Um, we hope that you would join us for our next session because we couldn't cover we couldn't cover it all here, um, and so that's why we're going to have two parts to this conversation. So thank you again for coming, and we're here to support you if you have any questions and. I hope you have a good rest of your day and thank you so much to our presenters. Thank you, Dr. Atkins-Jones and thank you, Dr. Liu.